Welcome to Technotopia, the podcast of a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Peter Rubin. He's a writer on AR and VR. This is Technotopia. Hey guys, John Biggs here. Have you ever looked at your credit card statement and been shocked by the interest rate? Did you know that you could actually roll all of your credit card debt into one monthly payment at a lower fixed interest rate? That's what Lightstream wants you to know. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89% APR with auto pay. That's lower than the average credit card interest rate of 18% APR. The other interesting thing that these folks can do for you, they can get you a loan between $5,000 and $100,000, and you're going to get your funds as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees. There's also a fun fact, Lightstream plants a tree with every loan they fund. My listeners will get a special discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash techno. L-I-G-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash techno. Remember, all of this is subject to credit approval. The rate includes a 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash techno for more information. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Peter Rubin. He's senior editor at Wired and the author of Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, and the Limits of Ordinary Life. Welcome, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so have... Oh, okay. I just opened the, I opened the book and I went straight to the exchange program. Um, so we've, we, I went straight into the intimacy part of this whole thing. So why don't you tell me a little <laughs> about, about the book and, uh, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, we have uh, we we put a special dog ear in at the publisher level so that when you <laughs> open the book in the bookstore, you would go straight to the porn scenes. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, but but uh, you know that's that's almost all the way at the end. There's there's a lot of stuff in between. So so basically speaking, the the book takes as its watchword or its watch phrase the idea that. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about virtual reality as this, uh, this empathy machine. That's how Chris Milk, Chris Milk famously described it in a TED talk a few years ago. And that's definitely true. Uh, well, not definitely true. It, it, it's in my opinion true, but it, that also doesn't go far enough. So, mm-hmm. so really what the book sets out to, uh, to, to prove or to establish is that VR's real transformative property is the way that it kind of enables and, and facilitates intimacy between people and at some point that intimacy may involve ai but you know as if people read sherry turkle's uh piece uh in in the times over the weekend you know there are a lot of people who come down on the idea that you know we may have incredibly advanced ai and we may have incredibly advanced soft robotics but it's not going to replace human relationships and what's remarkable about that is true or not vr gives you this way to have these incredible relationships with humans through a digitally mediated platform, which is the first time we've ever been able to experience this, right? We had, we've had the internet for 20 something years and you and I, and, and the listeners all know that that's a great communication platform, but it's not, it, it does nothing for actual intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, you can meet people and you can become friends with people, but it's happening through room, uh, remove. It's keyboards and and screens and uh, and there's always this level of detachment between really communicating with someone, even with kind of what now seem commonplace but were once miracles like video chatting and Skype and FaceTime. 
you never actually make eye contact with anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, you're looking at the screen and they're looking at their screen. And so everyone looks at each other while the other person is looking down. Or if you're looking at the camera on your phone, trying to make it seem like you're making eye contact, uh, you don't see the other person. And so there's really been no way to enable a direct visceral person to person interaction. And, and VR actually does that by pushing you through the screen um, and, and effectively kind of putting you into a digital space. So now I'll, I'll buy that. I'll, 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 I agree completely. But I think there's also – I mean I've been, I've been doing online writing for what, uh, 18 years let's say, since about 2000, just sitting and staring at the screen the whole time. And I, I feel like I have uh, deep and lasting relationships with folks that I've met through this medium that I've never even met in person. Is that just because I'm a psychopath or what's the, what's, what's the answer there? No, I mean, that totally happens. So, so the way that, that internet community, well, the way relationships, let's say have formed up until now tend to take two tracks. There's a track that's more likely in real life and there's a track that's more likely, uh, on the internet. And both of those, of course, have exceptions. But Mm -hmm. what tends to happen in real life is you meet a person in a casual setting and you see the outside before you get to know the inside. And what happens on the Internet is by and large a reverse of that. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, social media has has changed that a little bit. But I'm talking about with kind of the advent of multi-user communications, whether it's bulletin boards or forums, uh, you know, everyone or chat rooms, especially everyone knows the phenomenon of, of becoming super close with someone online super quickly. Mm -hmm. And the difference between the kind of conventional real life track and the conventional online track is that, uh, when you meet someone that you've gotten to know very well online, a lot of times that acts that kind of contradicts the image that you had in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, that's much more likely to happen in a, in a relationship that's gotten super close or super intimate very quickly because you are ascribing all these things to people that they may or may not have presented to you. Like, obviously, we know that people kind of curate their persona online and all these other layers of kind of micro deception. What, what you're describing is a relationship that's born out of years of communication with people. So that's much more akin to a real life relationship, whether or not you have, have met each other in real life. And I mm-hmm. would, I would gather that when you did meet them in real life, you have established enough of a, <laughs> let's say a, an authenticated rapport. This is, you, you've gotten to know the real well, person. The, the, that takes the, such the a long time to do. Absolutely. Online. Most interesting thing that ever happens to me is like, uh, like somebody like Mike Isaac, a uh, New York times guy, he would, he came up to me once at a, a disrupt a TechCrunch disrupt. And I was, I was busy at that point. And I'm always like kind of running around there. And I didn't, I don't think I felt I gave him enough attention that that very moment because we were we were kind of buddy buddy online, and then I didn't give him enough attention physically. Not that he wanted any <laughs> that he wanted anything aside from just a, a quick hello. Uh, but it was so strange because it was kind of like, God, I screwed up this this real life relationship with him uh, mm-hmm. as a buddy uh, through this through this operation that I did, and now we can I can basically just retweet him now, and that's basically the the extent of that. So it's such a it's it's interesting. So. So the, the idea is that, that VR will allow us to be more intimate in terms of friendships, in terms of relationships, uh, because it is a visual medium, because it's a, well, not even a visual medium, right? It's a immersive medium. It's, 
Yeah, it's an embodied medium. So mm-hmm. so that's a huge part of it. So basically, you've got the kind of real life track that takes a very long time to get to know someone. You've got the online track in which you get to know someone's interior well before you know the exterior, whether or not that the interior that you meet is genuine or not. So VR presents this kind of third track. And that's what's so fascinating about it to me. On one hand, you go in and uh, because it is it, it has a degree of the anonymity that, that we became accustomed to with the internet. You can go in without this burden of real life involvement. It's much harder to walk up to a group of people and start chatting at a cocktail party than it is in VR or you know on Twitter or wherever it is. That's why all these buddy-buddy relationships have happened. And let me just say, also knowing Mike, I can assure you that there is no such thing as enough physical attention that he can be paid <laughs> So you were in a no-win situation there. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> Interesting. All right, great. But but uh, no, I'm just playing. Yeah, yeah, Mike, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, but so so the third track with VR is that so you get a little bit of the the anonymity that the internet affords you. So people are able to, especially if they suffer from social anxiety, to kind of overcome that obstacle and and start communicating with people because they're emboldened by the idea that they're not really there. They're mm-hmm. emboldened by the idea that they can take off this headset, that they have this escape hatch. But because VR is an embodied medium, it's not just what we're typing. It's not and it's and it's especially not just our voices. It's our mannerisms. Because in especially in the higher immersion platforms like the the Vive and the Oculus Rift and uh and and anything that has these kind of um immersive hand controllers, your gestures are being translated into VR as well. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it allows for this kind of inescapable genuineness in that the way we, the the way that we communicate with people in real life is very different from the way we communicate with others online because of nonverbal cues. That's not just eye contact. That's the way we move. That's the way we react when we're asked a question. All that stuff comes through in VR, even if you can't see what someone's pupils are doing quite yet, though that's coming in the next year or so with gaze tracking. But because the way our bodies move is extrapolated from what our hands and our head are doing, and those are physically tracked in VR, our nonverbal communication is for the first time available in a non-physical face-to-face interaction. Mm-hmm. So the way that you the way that you move and the way that you act comes through and that has a way of cutting through whatever layers of deception are involved with this persona that we like to present to the world, whether it's on a social media platform or a chat room or, or wherever it is. So it combines kind of the best of both worlds in that you have the sincerity, the inescapable sincerity of uh, of repeated conversations in real life, but you have a little bit of that added um, confidence of the anonymity of the internet. Mm-hmm. So you bring these two things together, and and not only are you more likely to be able to talk to people casually when you first meet them, but you're giving them a truer version of yourself than than you might have in any other digital mediated form. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, so you kind of you still do have the escape hatch, but it's a, it's, but you're still, you're still embodied, I guess. What's, what's some of the coolest stuff that you've seen, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of VR, AR, were you able Uh, to get get a chance to see magic leap or anything? I haven't seen magic leap in a little while. I have not, I haven't experienced magic leap in its kind of current, uh, in the debt with the dev kit. Mm -hmm. I, I experienced the, their technology at their headquarters in, in Florida a couple years ago. Um, and so it wasn't as kind of, 
uh, slickly productized. It was it was one of those things where you kind of walked up and you know you put your face up to it, uh, or you had something that you held up to your face, but it wasn't a you know it wasn't a slick. Um, So. I have kind of seen Magic Leap and I've seen the technology that Avagant has uh, and HoloLens and all of these are kind of, for for whatever different terminology everyone likes to use, these are all effectively AR, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. can call it holographic or, or, or mixed or, or whatever it is. So there are two very different spheres of experience, as you well know. Like there's the the surrounding yourself in an artificial environment like you do with VR is a very different thing from the magic of having these artificial objects kind of seamlessly integrated in, into your real world surroundings like you do with AR. Uh-huh. So in VR, what I tend to respond to are not just bringing multiple people together, um, which is what I really try to concentrate on in the book, but it, it melding that with some of the magic uh, that you have with the kind of infinite palette of of computer generated world so something like the wave vr which is uh it's basically um nightclub culture it's basically Mm -hmm. club culture where you have a dj playing music people are in there dancing and communicating and they have these kind of power-ups that are basically club drugs the visual (laughs) version um you know and so you can you can tool around uh kind of with a jetpack sometimes and it's this you get like the ecstasy of this collective music driven dance experience uh with a little bit of kind of psychedelic effect from the visuals and it's embodied and it's kinetic so you're really dancing and it's this kind of incredible experience um and similarly not on the dance culture tip but just more kind of general um kind of goodwill and games is is rec room which is this Mm multi-user they call it a a social club but it's basically all these little games that you can play with people but it's gotten more and more powerful so they've kind of rolled out a uh kind of a tongue-in-cheek Fortnite ripoff uh called rec royale and there's this these sandbox tools and people are making their own worlds and then hanging out in those worlds. And it's gone from being a place to play paintball with a bunch of other people to someplace where you can kind of build your own reality and do whatever you want in there. So it's really remarkable on the AR MR side. I tend to be, uh, much more captivated by simpler things. (laughs) So, you know, Mm -hmm. just, I, I, I think what we haven't seen yet with AR is, a considered experience, right? We've seen a lot of demos and we've seen what it's able to do and we've seen what it can do through our phone. And for me, the utility of something as simple and pedestrian as a tape measure in AR is really what its value is. Like there's something, I think Magic Leap is really doing something very different by setting itself up as a brand of, story and magic and that's ar to me is kind of the flip of that and Uh it's very easy to say well it's it's simplistic to say that ar is going to be enterprise and vr is going to be consumer because they're obviously going to be both but ar is i think you know if the end point of this truly is an all-in-one device that can toggle between the two um it can it can go dark and occlude your surroundings and can effectively be a vr headset or it can be fully transparent and be an ar wearable then I think we're just going to use AR in public and at work and in our day-to-day lives, and we're going to use VR kind of when we go home. It's VR is going to be the place to either get a little solitude or to talk to people um, somewhere 
where you really want the conversation to happen. I mean, one of the, the incredible things about VR is that the memories that you form uh, of a virtual reality experience are neurologically basically indistinguishable from a real life memory. Hmm. You know, the way we remember movies and video games and, and uh, Slack conversations, we remember them, but we don't remember them viscerally in the same way. And experiments are, have shown, I go <laughs> more into this, but I, I'm aware that we've got our time limitations of, um, not only do people who experience things in a VR context versus uh, watching them on TV context, not only do they, uh, not only do people do it in, who experience it in VR outperform people who watched it on the screen in memory tests, but they are more accurate and it takes them on average a kind of a tick longer to answer in memory tests because where they're accessing it hmm. from in the brain are the zones that collect autobiographical memories and experiential memories, not observation-based memories. And so VR's magic to me is if you want to talk to a relative or a friend and they're across the country, we're very used to doing it on our phone. Uh, and again, you're going to remember seeing them on the screen and you're going to remember where you were. But if you do this in VR, you will remember being there with them in whatever environment you chose, whether that's on the surface of Mars or, you know, flying above Central Park or or somewhere just kind of every day, you know, a, a coffee shop or a stadium, mm -hmm. um, that becomes your memory. And so it's 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 a way to make our existing relationships that much more special. And then AR's gift, and this is again where Magic Leap is really setting itself apart, AR's gift, I think, is going to be not just making your surroundings more pliable in the sense that you can have, you know, all the computer monitors you want at work or, or as simple as that. Um, but it's an informational play to me rather than experiential play. Sure, the and concept, the concept of augmented intelligence, right? You're, you're getting yeah. an extra, you're getting an extra piece, uh, stuck to your brain. Exactly. And, and magic leap is really kind of branding itself as an experiential technology. And that is going to hinge totally on who their partners are. It's going to rest on what Lucasfilm or ILM does with Magic Leap stuff. Can you make augmented reality uh, an I-have-to-have-it technology for people who just want to have fun with it versus people who are going to use it for, for work or productivity or, or any other thing? I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think anybody does. I think Magic Leap is, is staking itself on that, but they, they're also making sure to have other applications as well in this kind of early crop uh, of what they want people to start building. VR, I think, is facing kind of the opposite challenge, which is everybody understands how it's escape and how it's entertainment. But VR's challenge is to make clear to people how it becomes uh, kind of an indispensable part of your life. And that's a t that's a tall order too. Mm -hmm. When does all this? Change. When does Sorry, all this happen? When does all this happen? When do we? When do? When do all this cool stuff uh, become commonplace? Commonplace is the is the magic <laughs> word here, right? So you know, a friend of mine, uh, Jesse Damiani, who works in uh, XR and and loves talking with people about just this very thing, he put a poll up on Twitter uh, last week. He he is in touch with virtually everyone in the industry. And he was just like, you know, what do you think? When is this going to truly become kind of a commonplace everyday experience? Is it going to happen 2018 or 2019? Is it going to happen 2020 to 2025? Or is it going to happen after 2025? 
And I think 90% of the people, and this is people who work in the industry, people who follow closely, I think everyone is kind of resigned slash uh, realistic about the fact that we are looking at 2020 or thereafter, um, earlier than 2025. But I think we're looking two, three years down the road. And that's for a number of reasons, not the least of which is because we haven't seen anyone come out with uh, an all-in-one device, something that can handle both AR and VR. And we haven't seen someone come out with a device that's truly kind of tetherless and portable. Magic mm-hmm. Leap is the first thing we've seen um, that does something like that. I mean, we did, Lenovo has a Daydream headset that is, um, that's kind of standalone and the Oculus Go is kind of standalone, but Oculus's next unit, the codename Santa Cruz, is a VR headset that you don't need a computer and you're not going to be tethered to anything, and it's six degrees of freedom. So it kind of has all these hallmarks that you need for true immersion, and it has six degree of freedom controllers. So from a purely VR standpoint, I think you're looking at whatever kind of Oculus is planning with Santa Cruz as being the first device that becomes the kind of thing that approaches uh, commonplace, but is kind of true cultural ubiquity. I think everyone is kind of waiting to see what Apple and or Google finally take the wraps off. Mm-hmm. That is going to be the kind of thing that drives an industry. What happens on that day? What happens the day after uh, it becomes ubiquitous? What happens the day after it becomes ubiquitous? I think it's not a day after thing. You know, the day after the iPod happened, the day after the iPhone happened, the day after, you know, you name a technological kind of flashpoint. And it's never a day after thing. It's a combination of the work that goes into making this kind of a polished product on day one, meaning it not only works at a hardware level, but it has a populated software ecosystem. That's all the run up to day one. And then day two and after is how people add to that. The iPhone wasn't uh, a must. The iPhone wasn't an everything for a long time. And I think just because Apple or Google or whoever creates this kind of incredible device, that is going to convince a lot of people to get off the sidelines and it's going to uh, convince a lot of people to upgrade maybe what they've already uh, bought in the past. But I think that going from that, going from uh, attainable and commonplace to, to truly ubiquitous is, is a thing that takes another year or two. And that it's a, the, our lives have to re—they have to reshape themselves around this technology, right? Just because we can do something with it doesn't mean that we are doing things with it. And once we are doing things with it, that's when our days will start to morph to accommodate those things. Just like messaging in the workplace has changed, and now email is is a thing that we reserve for a different part of our workday. I think that the affordances that AR, VR allow for it, are going to take some time to reshape what it is our days look like. Mm-hmm. All right, fascinating. So, are you ready to uh, are you ready to allow your kids to like have untrammeled access to AR, VR for the rest of their lives? Well, so I I don't have kids of my own, yeah. but I did I did get nieces and nephews um, a couple of Oculus Go's when they came out, only because yeah, that's that's really the first thing. You don't need a computer for. It's better than slapping your phone into it. It's actually built to do VR. And um, and when I gave these to them, and by proxy I gave them to my sister, <laughs> uh, who's really the custodian of all this, I was like, look, if they're younger than 13, they get 
five to 10 minutes in it. If they're between 13 and 16, they get like 15, 20 minutes. Uh, and it gets, you know, it's, there's a little permission the older you get, only because it's an open question. Do I think that it's harmful? No. But would I let, uh, you know, would I let an eight-year-old go nuts with VR? No, because there are enough physical conflicts that we haven't totally figured out yet. There is eye strain because of the virgin's accommodation conflict. You know, once you have multifocal VR, things become a little bit easier. And even after that, there's a question of um, what, you know, how are our brains working with this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, I don't purport to know the answers, and I certainly don't know the answers. So for me, it's wait and see. If I were a parent and I had a young kid, it would be, uh, it would be the idea of screen time times a million in the sense that not only would I ration that time, but it would be it would be done on a much smaller scale. So AR is a lot less uh, unknown to me because part of the benefit of that is it's not occlusive. It's not based on you looking at a screen. Mm -hmm. It's based on something being reflected at your eye or or, or whatever it is. And there's less physical, uh, there's less of a physical strain involved with kind of taking it in. There is the question of, of how it rewires us as we've seen from, you know, kids trying to tap magazine pages, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the question of what is intrinsically good or bad. And, in, in the way that we interact with the world, but there, you know, we're heading into an age where what we consider to be reality becomes all of a sudden a lot less concrete and we can induce reality. We can, um, we can simulate it in a way that, that even if it isn't a hundred percent indistinguishable from our corporeal reality or whatever you want to call our real, real life, it, we're still going to be as a society beginning to take these virtual objects as just being part of our surroundings. Mm-hmm. So there is going to be some some time of coming to grips with that and, and asking what that means, you know, ethically and legislatively and all and all these other stuff, all these other things, depending on kind of what kind of Pandora's boxes get open with this. But um, untrammeled access to, to new technology <laughs> for kids, I don't know if that's ever a good and, idea. And, and, you, and you know what's going to happen. There's going to be like the first AR VR thing for, for Apple or whatever, and you're just going to see babies in, uh, in, in carriages being pushed around with, with their heads strapped into Oh, God, things. I know. I know, so, I know. Uh, so, okay, so this wasn't that optimistic of view of the future, but I'm glad, I'm glad that somebody's optimistic about AR VR. I was a little bit, uh, I was a little bit down on it um, most recently just because it was kind of a, a lot of the stuff that was coming out of it was kind of silly, but it feels like, uh, it feels like we're just on the cusp of, uh, of massive improvements. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, there's, there's where the industry is, then there's where the products are, and then there's where the software is. And all of those things kind of have this lag between what is possible or what you can see and what is easy to get. So even on, on the like experiential software side, there are some truly amazing things that you can see, but they've been up until now relegated to if you are privileged enough to be able to go to a film festival or go to a, a museum and, and see this incredible you know, exhibit in Uritu's thing uh, at, it's at LACMA right now. It's called Carne Arena. It's, um, it's kind of this huge open space, uh, and it's a, it's a 
unbelievably free roam VR experience. And no, it's not the kind of thing you can have in your house. Mm-hmm. It's right now it's facility, it's location-based entertainment facilities and it's museums and it's film festivals. And as the devices get better, the software that you can experience kind of on your own as a consumer gets better. And so it's this kind of protracted trickling down that happens. It's weird. It's weird, John, to be, to be optimistic about the, the, the effect that the technology is going to have. And like in the two years since I started working on the book, that just felt weirder and weirder. You know, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, when I, I first uh, started covering VR was in like 2013 and then it was very easy to be like, Oh my God, this is unbelievable. This is going to change everything. And then, uh, and then of course the wait and see period kicks in and then you realize what these companies are up against. And then, you know, you, you begin to understand that the time frame that we're looking at is a lot more glacial than you wanted to think. And, mm-hmm. and so I think there's been a lot of recalibration. However, the core dynamics are the same of this. So it's a matter of when it's going to happen, not if it's going to happen. And for me, the hope is, of course, it's going to open the door to bad actors, just like any distributed technology mm-hmm. does. You can always take advantage of someone else over the internet, or you can always try to. However, the because it brings people together in a, in a more visceral way than online culture tends to, I think the hope is that we're going to feel some more accountability. This is going to feel much more like an actual social contract uh, akin to real life than it is to the like tattered social contract that we've all given up on because it's smoldering and urine soaked <laughs> in a corner uh, somewhere. And so, you know, I am, I'm, I'm worried about the things that I think is realistic to be worried about, but by and large, if we can deal with those things, then, then I'm incredibly optimistic I'm, about, I'm about always, what it can. I'm always very, uh, very, uh, suspicious when a, uh, when a tech journalist is excited about something, but it sounds like, it sounds like this is, uh, <laughs> it sounds like we might be onto something finally. <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so. <laughs> Peter, thanks for joining us on Technotopia. This has been very cool. Book is future essence, future presence. I'm sorry. Uh, where can, uh, do you have a website that folks can look at as well? Uh, yeah, people can go to futurepresencebook.com. That's the mm-hmm. easiest URL to remember. That's just like a mirror to a page on my personal site. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know it's everywhere. It's in bookstores. It's on Amazon. Uh, so if you're looking for the book, you should be able to walk in uh, or surf anywhere and get it. Uh, more information about the book uh, is at that URL. All right, super. This has been Technotopia. I'm John Diggs. Thank you for listening. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the Internet in a fun new way or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com Technotopia is presented by your host, John Biggs. It was produced by Rick Barr of Bar26 Entertainment at ricksvoice.com. It appears every Friday at noon, and we're always looking to talk to interesting people. Tweet at John Biggs if you'd like to join us on the show.